This morning, we are ending the book of Philippians. So next week, we're going to be starting in the book of Colossians. And, uh, and so we are ending uh, this fabulous, fabulous book of joy. Jesus, others, then you. When you get that order correct, you have joy. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you all the things that you're saying to the church today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Well, Paul, in his final message, if you would, our final section of the book, is going to talk about the issue of money. Now, if you're in Calvary Chapel, you, you know it's rarely talked about, only when it comes about in the scripture. And um, I've been here now two years, exactly almost, and never have taught on it or, or mentioned it um, in any form, just didn't come about in the scripture, or I would have. So this is an unusual day for us, and uh, it rarely happens, but when it happens, we, we want to teach it doctrinally correct. Now, my concern is when I teach on this issue is that there are people that have been a part of churches that have been abused, especially in this area of money. They have been pressured and they have been manipulated and they have been really, you know, they got PTSD uh, from church, you know, uh, over this issue. And it's just a continuous bad taste in their mouth when it's brought up. We don't bring it up. We have some offering boxes um, and they're there for you to give and people do. Some are online. They just have it uh, duplicated every month. It just comes online. Some people, uh, like myself, I, I just have it electronically sent from my bank every month automatically uh, to the church. So, you know, there's all different ways today um, to give. But I think what will heal you <laughs> is just the proper doctrine on the issue of giving. And the verse-by-verse -verse teaching will talk about that issue as often as God wants the issue talked about. And so we now end in verses 14 to 23, this final section. Nevertheless, you have done well that you've shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia... No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. That's, that's pretty astounding. But as we saw in the first chapter, there were people dedicated to go to all the churches where Paul had started just to try to badmouth Paul and hurt him and saying, God's shutting him up. That's why he's in prison. Look at us. We're, we're wealthy, and we're doing great. We're not in prison. But God put Paul in prison to stop him in his bad doctrine of grace. And, um, and so many churches um, shied away from Paul, and churches that were supporting him to continue his apostolic ministry. Because when Paul came into a place, he would receive no offering from them. He used the money from the churches he had already been at that send offerings, and he used that money, or he made tents. He would work for the money. But the reason is, because he didn't know if he was going to be in one place for days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe a few years. But he did not want it connected to money. Oh, yeah, Paul stayed there three years because they paid him a lot of money. Paul left there after a week because he didn't get any money. He didn't want such a rumor being able to have any credence. So when he came to preach the gospel, he did it without charge to that city. But afterwards, if they wanted to support his ministry uh, to continue to spread the gospel where it had never been heard before, that was fine. And that had happened, but it had completely shut down. And Paul was in need in, while he was in prison. He wasn't getting financial support, um, which was necessary to pay the rent on the house he was staying at, to get food, to get supplies, whatever it was. Well, verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again to my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, here's the important point, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. 
Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then gives a final greeting of the last three verses. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. He's given a little nudge saying these guards and these waiters and these people that work for Nero are getting saved. There's a revival going on right under Caesar's, or right under Caesar's nose there. Um, and uh, he talks in detail about that in, in the book of Romans or the end of Romans. And then the final word, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen to that. The grace is where it's all at, right? Uh, it's the grace of God that brings us to salvation. It's the grace of God that keeps us. It's the grace of God that will take us into those pearly gates. So the first point I want to make is some interesting trivia points about giving in the Bible. You know, you say, well, believing, believing, having faith, that, that's, that's an important topic in the Bible. Yep, it's mentioned 272 times in the Old and New Testament. Prayer, now there you go. Prayer is the number one thing a church needs to be doing. Absolutely true. Mentioned 371 times in the Old and New Testament. What about love? Oh, yeah, yeah, that should be the number one. That's it, love. God is love. We're to love one another. Mentioned 714 times in the New and Old Testament. But here's an interesting point. The issue alluding to money, talking about money, 2,162 times in the Old and New Testament. One calculated out, and it almost comes to one in every 10 verses of the Bible. Somehow alludes to money or talks about stewardship or giving. Jesus had 38 parables, and 12 of the 38 parables in some way used money uh, as the matter of that parable. One-sixth of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels are about that subject. Now, you might know the longest book of the Bible happens to also be in the middle of the Bible, which is on the Word of God, Psalms 119. But the second longest book in the Bible is Numbers 7. And it's basically a counting sheet. It says this leader uh, and this tribe gave this much, and then it tells you what they gave. And then the next leader, who it's almost exactly the same thing, leader after leader after leader, and it just goes on and on and on and on. It's, it's reading an accounting sheet. And you think, God, why, why would you do this? Why would you take up an entire chapter, the second longest chapter in the Bible, just giving an account of what people gave? And I think the answer is God's letting us know he's keeping an account that God is keeping an account and an accurate account, even if it's a mundane accountant sheet. I love that in Acts uh, 10, where Cornelius, it, the angel says, God has a monument in heaven built to you, to all your life of prayer and all of your giving. Wow, Cornelius, a Roman centurion. We're going to see a statue in heaven of him giving from his uh, life of giving up to that point he wasn't even born again yet he just he had faith though in the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob so the second point is why does God see this as such an important topic for us number one to free us from a heart of greed number two that he might prosper us according to his will now while we're on earth and number three that he might be rich, that we might be rich towards God, that is, rich in heaven for all of eternity. Let's look at the first one. He wants us to be free from a heart of greed. Interesting, Jesus in Matthew 6 teaches on this. He says in verse 19 to 21, 
Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. But lay up your treasures in what? Heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Interesting. Back in college, a guy said, hey, buy this stock. If you lose any money, I'll give it back to you. But sell it when I tell you to sell it. You know, I've never looked at the stock market in my entire life, but I was looking at it almost daily. And I did that for about a year and a half, and the guy said, hey, sell. And I sold, and I've never looked at the stock market since. <laughs> that was the money I made to go on my honeymoon. <laughs> but interesting, the stock plunged after that. And the guy uh, hung on to it for a long haul. But uh, nevertheless, where your treasure is, that, that's where your interests are. And so if they're in heaven, you're going to be heavenly minded, heavenly hearted, things in right perspective. There's that famous quote, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Jesus goes on in this parable, or in this teaching in Matthew 6, in verse 22, 23, a passage often misunderstood. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Not question mark, but explanation point. It's a great darkness. Now, this term, the eye being evil or bad, or the eye being unclear, or the eye being good, it is a Jewish expression on giving. You know, sometimes when I go to other countries, people will say, why do you guys say they're driving me crazy? And I'm like, you know, you're in the car and you're driving and they're mad at you. I mean, what's that mean? I said, I have no idea. How did you drive people crazy before cars? Did you gallop them to craziness? <laughs> and I, I really have no answer for them going, I just don't know. Well, this is one of those expressions that made sense to them somehow. But you have to realize He's talking about money here. And, and before that, he's talking about the issue of money. And after verse 23, he's talking about the issue of money. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But it's through the Old Testament, just three passages on this. In, in Deuteronomy 15, 9, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil, or your eye be unclear, or your eye is bad against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, he will cry out to the Lord against you and to become sin among you. In Proverbs 22, 9, he who has a generous eye or good eye or clear eye, translated different ways, will be blessed for he gives his bread to the poor. In Proverbs 28, 22, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. So what is Jesus saying here? He said, if the eye is good, in other words, you're viewing money correctly. You're being the proper steward of money. You have money and use money, but money doesn't have you. You don't have a greedy heart. You're being good steward with money when you need to be a good steward, but you're giving it in the way that God wants you to give it when you're supposed to give it. He says, if that's the case, your eye is good and your whole body is full of light. But if you are stingy with your money, holding it back, you're not giving it in the way God wants you to give it. Then your whole body is full of darkness. And boy, that darkness is greater than you can imagine. Interesting. In essence, Jesus is saying the litmus test to see where you are at spiritually is how you view money. So people can say, man, I'm going to have a great prayer life. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm seeking the Lord. I'm reading the Bible. I'm teaching Sunday school. I'm... 
But yet, God understands I can't give any of my money up. I need it all. Well, the Lord would say that even though you're doing all of those things, the litmus test says that your heart is not right with God. I mean, we all know the story of the widow with the mite, right? The rich people out of their wealth gave a percent. It was a lot of money, but it wasn't great to them. But the widow, out of all that she had, she gave. And the Lord said, her reward in heaven is going to be great. Interesting, one person said at 4% interest, as she put that penny in the bank, today it would be worth $44 billion (laughs) on a 4% interest rate. Interesting how the Lord sees us storing up the treasure in heaven. So it's not necessarily how much you give, but how much that percent is to you. You see, for one person to give a million dollars, it would be a small percent to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, right? But to you, it might be all that you have. Jesus goes on to conclude this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I have found this to be 100% true. There's some of you today who give of your tithes, who give of your offerings, and you do it consistently, have been for years, and you're sitting there going, man, I love when um, the pastor preaches on this because it set me free. I remember one of our elders in San Diego had not been tithing all year. Things were tight. And at the end of the year, they did his taxes, and he was, I don't remember exactly how much it was, but $3,252 short of tithing. He's like, oh, man, I've got the money, but I don't, ah, I just can't do it. And he doesn't tithe by the end of the year. In January, his van broke, and it was exactly that much money to fix it. And the Lord spoke to him and said, you cannot give it, but you're also not going to spend it on yourself. And boy, he he learned the lesson. And so there might be some here today going, that's what I thought. Come to church, money, money, money. That's all they want. I come into church, isn't that better than most people? You want my money too? Boy, you preachers, man, when you start talking about money, you're, you're so into it. You love that money, don't you? Yeah, you either love the one or hate the one. So you're here today and you love the Lord and you also love giving to the Lord. Or... You're upset because this is a sermon to get some of my money and I don't want to have to give more of my money. I threw $10 in the thing. Be satisfied with that. So you love the one or hate the one. You're loyal to the one or despise the other. And if you despise God because he's asking you to give your tithe, that's 10%, and above that of an offering, it's because you're serving the wrong master. You see, when you serve God, you're loyal to him and you're, you love the giving to him. And so, again, it's a revealing of the heart. And then Jesus tells a parable to help us understand the importance of this. He tells there, and I have a number of scriptures written out for you complete, but most of them I'm just going to mention and talk about it and move on. So uh, the verses are there in whole for you to study later if you so choose. But um, in Matthew 12, 15 to 21, Jesus tells a parable about this rich farmer, and he's doing great, but he has a record year, and his barns get filled up. The next year he has another record year, 
And this time his barns are already full, so he has to go build new barns. And he fills them up. And then he says in his soul, I am rich. I have all that I need. Now I can live the life. And that night, God says to him, you fool. For tonight, you die. This has always been the plan. The sands of your life have run out. And you're a fool because you have no treasure in heaven, only on this earth. And it ends in Luke 12, 21. So he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Second point here is that we might prosper according to his will. God makes the rich, God makes the poor, but according to his will, that we might have all the earthly stuff that he desires for us to have now. In Philippians 4.17, we just read, Paul said, I do not seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And he says in verse 19, and my God will supply all your need according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. This church did not give out of their surplus. They gave of their, out of their need as well. Proverbs 3, a very clear passage in verse 5 through 10. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Here it is. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. It will be, flesh to your, it'll be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now what is he talking about in Luke? Don't trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding. In what way? Don't be wise in your own eyes. In what way? It's about giving. Look in verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with all the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In the Old Testament, the farmer was commanded first to give the tithe to the Lord. So he would go and harvest the top 10%. It was the first, it was the best. The very first part, the very best part. The shepherd was to go and get 10% of the sheep. And then they were to take it to Jerusalem and give it as a tithe to the Lord. Then they went back home and took care of the rest. During that time, there could be a pestilence that killed a lot of the sheep. Or there could be a pestilence that destroys the rest of the crop. But they were ordered to give it first. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Interesting. They weren't to see if they could pay their bills and then decide how much they can give to God. They gave the first to God and then afterwards. You know, it's so amazing. God says 10%. People go, 10%? 5% maybe. Four and a half is better. Best I can do is seven and a half. What do you think about that, God. It's so funny, if God said 50%, we wouldn't have questioned it. If God said 40%, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have thought anything. Yeah, God says what he says. God could have said 30%, we wouldn't have blinked. But God says 10%, <laughs> and we're like, he's so stinking greedy, only giving me 90% to live on. Think about that. I mean, if God said 20%, you'd be going, 15% is all I can give 17.5% maybe. You would have given well over 10% and never even questioned it. God said, I said 20% because I really want 10%. Um, <laughs> you know, like that 55 speed sign on the freeway because they really want you to go 65. So, interesting here that we are not to be wise in our own eyes. Chuck Smith used to say, God's desire is that we would live under the spout where the blessings flow out. Don't move from that place. You might be familiar with Malachi 3, a very well-known passage there. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, and there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, such a blessing that there's no room enough to receive it, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, and he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed, 
and you will be a delightful land, says Lord of hosts. Wow, what blessings come that God desires in the tithes and the offerings. Bring them in to the storehouse. Interesting, in the Old Testament, the tithe, the 10%, was for the salaries of the Levites, for the priest. Then they had other offerings. They had an offering for the temple or temple tax. They had offerings for the poor. It's interesting, a lot of these happened not yearly, but like every four years or every so many years, they had to give an amount. If they had a son, they had to give an offering uh, of redemption priced for their son. One author looked it up, and he put it all together, and he said, basically, in the course of a decade or two, everybody would give 23 and a third percent in, in the Old Testament. That's what it came out to, ultimately. The tithe was just the minimum. Now, I'll just say, in the Old Testament, they gave for a lamb, a literal lamb, that could cover their sins. In the New Testament, we have the Lamb of God, the Son of God, and he took away our sins. Can't we do at least what they did in the Old Testament? I'm not talking about the 23rd and the 3rd. I'm talking about the tithe. Isn't that just sort of a minimal? Don't you think God's just sort of saying, that's just sort of the raw bones of the bottom of the, of the heap. 10% is the bottom, and then above that of an offering. In Proverbs 11, 24 and 25, there is one who scatters yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will be watered himself. In Ecclesiastes 11:1, 1, cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 11, Paul says, or actually 6 through 11, Um, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it's written, he disperses abroad. He, get, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for our liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So it really comes down to the heart. It really comes down to what percent it is to you. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. People sometimes ask, now, I need to ask, do I tithe on the net or do I tithe on the gross? And I say, do you want a net blessing or a gross blessing? (laughs) It's really whatever you purpose in your heart. Number three, that we might be rich towards God and rich in heaven for all of eternity. Again, we just read in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus commands us to lay up treasure in heaven. In 1 Timothy 6, 7, he says, we brought nothing in this world, certain we're going to not carry anything out. And we just read here in Philippians 4, 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Jim Elliott, who was martyred preaching the gospel, He said this in his journal, his last entry before he was put to death. Elizabeth Elliot, let it be known. He wrote this, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Wow, goosebumps. So true, isn't it? The the one person uh, was at the, funeral of a, a multimillionaire and, and uh, somebody whispered to another guy rather rudely, how much did he leave behind? And the guy said, everything. <laughs> it really doesn't matter, does it? Rich or poor, we leave it all behind. Well, here's the next point. In the Bible, how should we give? I'm going to give you six points on this. First of all, by faith. 
It's got to be according to your faith. If it's not a faith, it's sin. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus says, Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over into your bosom. For at the same measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. In those days, they would bring a basket to get the seed. And they would pour it all in the basket. And then the guy who's getting the basket would shake it and move it and shake it. And what would happen? All the air bubble would leave and it would go down a few more inches. And so he could get more. And then he would shake it together some more and more would be piled more densely into that basket. This is the picture Jesus has given that we give to the measure you give, it's going to be given back to you. And I, I might say this is in forgiveness. It's, tr it's true also. Uh, it's also true in kindness and showing mercy. To the degree you show mercy, you receive mercy. There's a lot of areas, but the money is also here in this passage. Again, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully also rebountifully. By faith, believe the word of God. Don't lean on your understanding don't, don't be wise in your own eyes. Realize our life is a vapor, right? And we're going to be in heaven with the Lord. We today know, boy, we need to get our money in retirement or we won't be able to make it when we get into whatever day when we think we can't work anymore. Well, heavenly, we should even be a zillion times more diligent. Number two, we're not to get Give out of need. God is not in need. In Philippians 4.11, Paul told them that when he mentioned the finances and thanked them for giving it. He said, not that I speak in regard to need. Even though he had need, he said, that's not, not the point. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I, I'll make it whether you give me anything or not. God will provide some way or I'll just be in need and I'm going to heaven soon. It doesn't matter. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Listen, not grudgingly or of what? Necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you giving out of guilt. He doesn't want you giving out of pressure. He doesn't want you giving and saying, here, there you go. I, I hope you're happy. No. God is never in need, and if anybody ever makes it sound like we need to bell God out or bell God's church out or bell out the God's radio ministry or, or whatever, boy, I don't think the Lord likes that. In Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Again, God does not want somebody thinking that he is up there going, oh man, I hope somebody gives. I hope the offering's big this week because I'm in need. If anybody ever presents God like that, they are in sin. And boy, how they're misrepresenting the Lord. In Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you... <clears throat> will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalms 89, 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world in all its fullness, you have founded them. And Haggai 2, 8, for the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. So let's not forget that God can provide an infinite number of ways. I love that story in Matthew 17 where they need to pay their temple tax. It came up every so many years to help upkeep on the temple there in Jerusalem. And Peter said, what do we do? We're all needing to pay. And they were sweating over it. And Jesus said, Peter, just go fishing. Of course, he loved fishing, right? And he said, you're going to catch a lot of fish, but the first one you catch, I want you to open it up right away. And there he opened it up, and there was a gold coin in the stomach, and it was more than sufficient to pay their temple tax. God knows 
not only every sparrow that falls to the ground, but he knows every fish swimming around and what's in their stomach. God, God is infinite. He can bring manna from heaven. He can be water out of a rock. Boy, we need a Moses right now in California. He caused the wind to blow and brought all the quail to stack three feet high. Jesus broke the bread of a little boy of his loaves and fishes and fed the multitude and had more than they started with left over. God is not in need, nor will he ever be in need. Don't present him that way. And don't let it be the reason you're giving. You don't want to be giving because you feel pressure or like you need to bell out, uh, whether it's the church or a radio program or some other ministry. No. In 2 Corinthians 8, or the third point is a willing heart only, not grudgingly. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3, he's talking to the church saying they're being horribly persecuted in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians there, and they're in great need and a famine is there. And we are going to all of the Gentile churches asking them to collect an offering to give to the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul is taking this to some people and places that are really poor themselves. And Corinthians was, the church in Corinth were under horrible persecution and they were very poor themselves. But nevertheless, he asks the poor people if they wanted to make an offering, uh, probably not a big one, but for the, for the Jews in Jerusalem. And in verse 1 through 3, moreover, brethren, we make it known by the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty, abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were, notice here, freely willing. We're going to talk about that them in just a minute some more. Jesus said it, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Boy, you just sort of just, this is the only thing Jesus said that's not in the Gospels. Paul says, it didn't make it into any one of the four Gospels, but yet Jesus did say it. And he, that's just sort of Jesus' standpoint. I'm going to give. I'm just going to be a giver. It's, it's just a happy place to live. It's a joyful place to be, to be a person giving. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. We read this a second ago, but not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he doesn't want any grudging giving. When I was a, a kid, my dad's sister, my aunt, came and was at our house on a Saturday with my cousins. And my parents sort of arranged it that I would go spend the night because my aunt wasn't following the Lord. And she would sort of feel like she needs to be at church the next day to take me to church. And it was sort of a manipulative thing. But it worked. But we had a tradition in our family. On Sunday mornings, my dad made breakfast. But he would always go around and say, how many eggs you want? Every, every Sunday, didn't matter. How many pieces of bacon you want? And we, we would say, oh man, I'm hungry today. Give me three eggs and three pieces of bacon. And, and uh, okay, and boy, he would give us what we wanted, whether we could eat it or not. Well, I found out this was a family tradition because I was at my aunt's house and sure enough, Sunday morning, she did the same thing. And I'm like, man, I'm hungry. I'll take three eggs and three pieces of bacon. And she's like, okay, well, we get to the breakfast table, and my aunt was rather poor. And there, my two cousins had no bacon, and I had three pieces of bacon. And I'm like, uh, my cousin says, hey, I, I said I wanted three pieces of bacon too. And my aunt said, no, we only had three pieces, and, and Brian's going to get them all. And I said, well, you know, now that I think about it, one is really plenty. Let's all just have one piece, and that makes me even happier. Nope. You want three, you're going to get three. And I argued back and forth and tried to persuade it. I was a little guy. And finally she insisted. Oh, my stomach was tied up, and I, could, I couldn't eat hardly any of that food. But I made myself, forced myself to eat a little bit, and I was just sick to my stomach. When somebody's giving grudgingly, 
God is like, ooh, uh, yeah, I don't, <laughs> this, may, this, is, this is not blessing me. It's making me sick. God loves a cheerful giver. I think of uh, that story when God commanded to Moses to build the tabernacle. And the Lord commanded it in Exodus 35, 4, that everybody would give, but every single piece of material or gold or whatever they gave had to be from a willing heart. And everyone gave with a willing heart. And it was a radical. People's hearts were stirred up. Everyone whose spirit was willing, they came as many as had a willing heart to give the offering. And it says in Exodus 35, 29, the children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men uh, whom heart were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. Well, they sent to them and they said, uh, we've got too much gold, we've got too much silver, we've got too much material. Tell the people to stop, Moses. And so they, he has a new command. And he goes out to the people and he said, don't give anymore, thus saith the Lord, stop giving. And the people are going, I didn't give yet. I, wanna, I want my gold to be a part of the tabernacle. I want my wood to be a part of the tabernacle. And so people kept giving anyway. You know, I'm sure there's probably a fenced off area. And so now people are just chucking it over the fence, you know. And so Moses had to put up guards, not to keep from people stealing it, but from people giving because it was just too much. Isn't that amazing? He couldn't restrain the people from giving. They tried, put guards around and tried to stop it. They couldn't. What a beautiful thing that must have been to the Lord. Not grudgingly, but willingly. David ended up setting up a statue, statute to Israel, not meaning to, but you might remember he sinned and counting the people, God told him never to do that. And there was a plague that broke out and, and the only way to stop it was to go and give God a sacrifice. And he went above his house, which would later become the temple area, and he went to a guy and said, hey, you got this giant bedrock here that you, you, you um, used to harvest your grain and stomp it out there but I need to use it to make a sacrifice. Sell me your field. And he's like, no, 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 no. I give it to you, king. And David said, no, 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 no. I cannot. I have to buy it. There's no way I will give a burnt offering to the Lord, my God, with that which cost me nothing. In 2 Samuel 24. So there was a statute that said, no, it needs to cost. It must cost. There must be a sacrifice of the giving. So when we say not grudgingly, we're not going to say it's not going to mess with our flesh sometimes. <laughs> our flesh might be screaming. Isn't that the way when we pray, our flesh is screaming not to? When we read the Bible, our flesh is screaming not to? When we come to church on Sunday, our flesh is screaming not to? I mean, every spiritual thing, we have to fight our flesh. That doesn't mean you're doing it grudgingly necessarily. It's a sacrifice. It's by faith and it's a sacrifice. The fourth thing, we must give with a heart of love. You guys know 1 Corinthians 13, 3, where he said, if you gave all of your goods away to God to feed the poor, but you had not love, it would profit you nothing. In 2 Corinthians 8, going back there to verse 8 and 9, I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that amazing? God gave a sacrifice of himself out of a heart of love, that we he would become poor that we might become rich. And he, in Romans 11, 35 and 36, or, or who has first given to him, God, that it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. How would God ever be in debt to us? We're always in debt to him. In 1 John 5, 2 and 3, by this you know that the children of God 
that when we love God, we keep his commandments. And the love of God is this, that we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't a burden. God, 90% isn't enough that I live on it. You're mean. You're oppressive. Making me give a whole 10%. Well, let me tell you something. To those who love God, it's not a burden. Jesus, everything he taught us and gave us, he said it should make our burden easy, our load light, right? Remember in Matthew 11, when you come to me and you learn of me, in other words, my heart, my ways, the way I think things should be done, you will actually be lightened in your load. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So don't say to God that he's being a taskmaster trying to get your money. Giving is not God's way of raising money. God's on a need. He's infinite ways he can provide. Giving is not a way for God to raise money, but raising his children. It's a way to raise his children. Isn't that the key? God changing our heart, because if our heart is clear, good, our whole body is full of light, It comes down to God or mammon. What are we trusting in? What do we love? I love money. And I got to go to church. (laughs) I am loyal to my money. And I'm sort of angry that God wants 10% when 8% should be plenty. It's, It's in the heart. God's got to get that out of us. The fifth way of giving is the act of worship. We know the wise men came when Jesus was a baby and it says they fell down and worshiped him. And after that, they opened their presents of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Mary came with this costly alabaster flask and she dumped it on Jesus. And boy, the apostles were critical of her. Actually, it wasn't. It was Judas who got some of them in that way. In in John chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, it says Judas is the one who says, what a waste. You know, that perdition. He would be later called himself the son of perdition, the son of waste. But he says this could have been used in a more practical way. We could have sold that flask of oil and fed the poor with it. Not that he cared about the poor, but he wanted the money. He was the one with the money bag, and he was thinking all the money that would be in his bag that he could pilfer. And Jesus said, stop it. She's doing this for me because she's preparing my body for burial. And let me tell you, wherever the gospel's preached, from now on through eternity, this woman's name is going to be brought up. So Judas' heart was you're just giving to Jesus and dumping it on Jesus? What a waste. What a waste you dumping all of that precious money on Jesus. Aren't there people like that? Well, what are you giving to the church for? All they're going to do is buy Bibles and hymnals and, you know, the pastor's just going to upgrade his car. Do something practical with it. Give it to the rescue mission. Give it to Red Cross. Do something that's really valuable. That really will make a difference. Don't give it to the church. Isn't the church the bride of Christ? (laughs) Doesn't Jesus love the church? You know, the Bible doesn't say that Christ died for you. In Ephesians 5, it says he died for the church. It says he loves the church. The church is his bride. Individually, we are not the bride of Christ. And for a guy, that can seem really weird. Collectively, as a church, we are the bride of Christ. And it's not a waste to Jesus. Well, the church is sort of ugly and hypocritical and mean and judgmental. And Could you imagine going up to a guy who's going to get married in a month and say, hey, this is a nice bachelor party, but... You sure you're going to marry her? She's sort of ugly. And she's stupid. And she's a hypocrite. Could you imagine doing that to anybody? But in essence, there's people that do that about Jesus' bride. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and the Lord 
looks past our human weaknesses and sins, and he sees a beautiful bride. And whatever is marred by our humanness, our sin, he cleanses that, that we might be without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle on the wedding day. So the church in Corinth, going back to this, 2 Corinthians 8, was actually itself persecuted and poor. The same things happening to the believers in Jerusalem were happening to them and they're in Corinth. And Paul is saying, I'm sending Titus to you and he's going to help you develop an area of your life of giving for those who are persecuted and are poor. (laughs) And when Titus gets there, he says, you guys are in the same boat as they are, but yet you also still need to give. The widow giving her might, so to speak. And so Paul says there again, moreover, brethren, we came to you, the grace of God was supposed on the church of Macedonia that in their great trial of affliction, out of their abundance joy, even though they were in deep poverty themselves, abounded in liberality of their riches. I bear witness according to their ability, even beyond their ability. They were freely willing. Now listen to verse four imploring us with much urgency that we receive the gift in the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. In verse 5, he goes on, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus as he had begun so he would complete this grace in you as well, the grace of giving. But as you abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all deliverance, diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Paul says Titus came and there was something lacking in you. And when you wrestled out of your own poverty, out of your own persecutions, out of the knowing that your future looked pretty bleak financially, Titus didn't say you guys are exempt. He gave the same message as he did to the churches that were rich. And he said, God is doing something here in this offering. And we need to wrestle with the Lord. And as they did, they came to a point in their heart that was far greater than just giving the money. First, they became deeper in the Lord. They became deeper. They gave themselves to the Lord in a way they had never given themselves to the Lord before. And then they came and they said, I'm a servant like I've never been before. We want to serve you, Paul. We want to serve you, Titus. We want to serve. We want to wash the feet of the poor people, uh, of the Jews who are being persecuted in Jerusalem. And then they didn't give out of what they had. They gave beyond what they had. And we implored them, back off, back off. No, 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 no. Don't, Don't give what you don't have. Just give what you have. And they said, no, this is what the Lord has required of us. God did that work of grace in them also. The sixth and final thing here is honesty. We remember the story in Joshua 7. When Jericho fell, God's like, hey, this is my tithe. The first city is mine. Don't touch it. Nobody gets any of the spoil from that city. But a guy named Achan, remember, he took some of it, hid it in this tent. And then they go to fight this little tiny town, Ai, and they lose. And they come back going, God, what's going on? And God said, they're sending the camp. And eventually the Lord revealed it. And he was stoned to death because he was not honest in that which was the Lord's. And then we know the story of Anna Sapphira. They said they're giving it all like Barnabas did because Barnabas got a lot of praise. He was a wealthy businessman, sold it all. 100% of it went to take care of the poor in Jerusalem. And Anna Sapphira made it appear that way. They gave 99.99%, but they held back some. And Peter said, you know, when you sold your business, 100% of it was yours. You didn't have to give a penny of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know that. We, we gave it all. And he says, why are you lying to the God? Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You and your wife have held some back. They both fell dead. Well, we know in Malachi 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? And you say, how can you rob? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way can we rob you? How can you rob God? He says, in tithes and in offerings. Not one 
or the other, but in both. You are cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in it. Try me, test me. The Bible makes it clear, do not test the Lord. It's a sin. Jesus there, uh, when he was being tempted, said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But here he says, tempt me, try me. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there's not room enough to receive it. I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake, that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor shall the vine fail to, to bear fruit in your field, says the Lord. And all the nations will call you blessed, and you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. In Leviticus 27:30, the Bible makes it clear that tithe is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Imagine, if you would, I'm down at a swimming pool, and I want to go swimming, but I need somebody to watch my stuff. And I tell the guy, hey, here's my keys, here's my wallet. Uh, I'm going to cover it up. Can you watch it for me? And I go swimming for an hour, and I get out, and I go over to get my towel, and I'm like, where's my wallet? He goes, your wallet? It's my wallet. After I held it for half an hour, it's mine. And I'm like going... How do you reason that? Well, it's just everybody knows. Once you hold a thing more than a half an hour, it becomes your possession. Now, you would think that's ludicrous, right? But in essence, that's what God is saying. If you made $1,000, that $100 of tithe, you're just holding it for a little bit. It was always God's. The 900 was yours, and from that 900, you give an offering of what you want. One penny or $100, whatever you want. That's up to you. But it was never yours. Not one second was that $100 yours. The moment you received that $1,000, all you were doing was holding on to that $100 until the Lord says, hey, I'm ready to receive it back. And we then give it to the Lord. And so the tithe is a required giving. It's supposed to have no strings attached. We just simply give it to the church and the pastors, and the elders, and the board, me- board members, they are the stewards of that money. You can't say, I'm going to take my tithe and give some to that ministry, and some to that ministry, and, some, and then I'll give the church some too. No, the tithe goes 100% to those who minister to you, to the pastors of the church. Now, above that is an offering. I want to give to that ministry, and that ministry, and that ministry. It's not of the tithe. The tithe is required and restricted with no ties. The offering, it's up to you. How much, where it goes, how it gets there, it's totally as you desire, touching the heart of God. Jesus taught us about this in Luke eleven forty two. He says to the Pharisees, oh, you guys are good tithers, mint and rue and all herbs and pass, but you pass by the justice and the love of God. And the grammatical structure of this Verse, he goes on to say, these you ought to have done. This is referring to the tithing. The word ought is must, like you must be born again. Without leaving the others undone. What? The justice and the love of God. So there are some people that are, look at their tithes and their offerings as sort of paying God off. The rich people, here you go. Here's a big fat check. Now just leave me alone, God. And leave, church, leave me alone. I don't, I don't want to do anything more than write a check. I don't want to worship. I don't want to teach Sunday school. I don't want to go on a mission trip. I don't want to help with the teen party. I, just, I'm, my contribution is just money. And God is saying, no. And then there's people who are going, I'll serve, I'll teach Sunday school, I'll usher, I'll go on the mission trip. Just, you can't have any of my money. You understand because I'm poor. Or at least I think I am. And God says no. He's not, he is God our Father. He's not the Godfather. It's not one or the other. It's just tithing without leaving the other undone. And it's, it's not just tithing, but it's also the mercy and the justice, and the love, and the serving, and the loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and seeking him first in his kingdom, and his righteousness, and being the salt and the light of the earth. Your money, you know, if you give a zillion dollars, it won't 
take the place of that. But in the same way, you're doing all of these wonderful things for the Lord and serving, but it doesn't neglect, don't neglect the money issue. It's not one or other, it's both, Jesus says. So as we're giving a real tithe, you can check your tax records from last year and just go and look and say, did I give 10%? And hopefully above that, I have an offering. And you get a tax write-off here, at least for a couple more years. <laughs> and so ask, did I give a real 10%? So the thing about the tithe, it's not a set amount. It's what it is to you. How much is that to you? And then the offering is whatever amount you choose. But both are mathematical. So you say, am I praying enough? I, what is praying enough? Am I reading the Bible enough? What, what is reading the Bible enough? Am I going to church enough? How much is that? It's arbitrary. But God has set it up with the money issue. It's mathematical. Well, I think I gave 10%. I feel like I, in my heart, I feel like I did. Well, it's just math. And, And this is where, again, we need to love God in truth as well as in spirit. And so it's a, it's a, a mathematical thing that helps us. We're almost done here, guys. You've been great. There was a church that lost its church treasurer. And for years, they've been asking the rich guy in the church who runs the granary for the town, the farming community, if he would be the treasurer. And he always said, nope, 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 nope. And finally, he goes, okay, you're putting the pressure on me. I will become the church treasurer, but here's the rules. Nobody can ask me about the church finances till the end of the year. No questions whatsoever. And I will not give any financial reports until the end of the year. Nobody can see anything for 12 months. Do you agree to that? People didn't like it, but they're like, yeah, we really need you. Okay. Well, at the end of the year, he puts out his report. The church indebtedness on their mortgage, 228000 paid off. The minister's salary up 8%. I like that. Yeah, amen. <laughs> the outreach of the church, the missions, 200%. There was no outstanding bills. And for the first time in years, they had a positive surplus of $11,252. The congregation were shocked. And now they can ask the question, how is this possible? And he said, well, You guys know I do all the finances at the granary, which most of you work at the granary. And so throughout the year, before I wrote your salary check, I first took 10% out and gave it to the church in your name. (laughs) You never even noticed it was gone. You you never even missed it. All All he did was say, if the church... Just tithe. It could have been done. Here's something that will blow your mind. If everybody who goes to church, which is less every year, actually gave a tithe, in one year, every mortgage payment of every church could be completely paid off. The next year, that amount of money would cure world hunger. That's just in a couple of years. Yes, God does bless the tithe and bless the offering and multiplies it. There was a hiker who didn't bring enough water as most people didn't when they were hiking this certain path and he finally gets up to this little shack and, and, and there's an old tiny pump there. And next to the pump is a bottle of water. And he's like, oh, I'm dying. He grabs the bottle and he starts to drink it when he notices a note on the bottle. And the, Bible, and the bottle says, you can drink this water, it's perfectly pure, it's perfectly good. But before you drink it, no. If you will pour out that entire bottle onto the mechanics of that water pump, it will actually lubricate it enough where the pump will pull the water up from the spring and then you can have all the water you want. It's up to you. And so, 
he thought about it going, man, I got this in my hand, or should I do the other? And so what he did was he poured it onto the pump, and sure enough, out came all the water he wanted. In the same way, our tithe, the little boy's fish and loaves, when we give it to the Lord, the Lord can take it, press it down, shake it together, running over back into our bosom. So one might say, I can't afford to tithe or give offerings. But the wise man would say, I can't afford not to. D.L. Moody once said, I can tell more from a man's spirituality than from his checkbook. Excuse me, I can tell more about a man's spirituality from his checkbook rather than his prayer book. I want to end with the passage we started with, Philippians 4, 15 to 19. Now you Philippians know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent to you from a sweet-smelling aroma, acceptable sacrifice. It was out of their poverty they gave, well-pleasing to God. And now verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Lord, we bring this to you this morning, and you know there's no guile in my heart. We're not trying to pump people for money. That we are coming, trying to grow in true doctrine and the maturity in you, in all aspects. And as Titus went and exhorted the church of Corinthians, so, or of Corinth, so today I come and exhort the body here at Calvary Chapel that as they are doing great in knowledge and speech and prayer and love and serving that they would also now grow and mature in this area of spiritual maturity as well. And let it be far more than what we hoped, that they would give themselves to you in a way they've never given themselves to you. There would be a surrender of the life like there had never been a surrender before, that there would be a depth of the spiritual reality that the natural man cannot understand. Only those who spiritually discern these things can understand. That there would be a love in their hearts that you, Jesus, who were so rich, came into poverty and through your poverty to make us rich. That we also would live in the same heart of love towards you that you love us. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, that you would do this today in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen, amen.